Lord, we rejoice in the victory that you secured at the cross, the irony of what was perceived by many to be your greatest defeat uh, ended up being your greatest victory here over sin. And so we thank you that you have accomplished this task. We thank you for your goodness to us. Help us now as we look at this passage in front of us in Christ's name. Amen. When, uh, when I was younger, my uh, dad used to do uh, something where he would uh, maybe in all in my words, I'll call it plain cause and effect. And he would say, if this thing didn't happen, I wonder if what, how things would have turned out in this regard. I remember um, he applied this thinking one time uh, to me because when I was in middle school, I was invited by a friend at the public school I went to, to go to his church uh, and their youth group. And it was through that one invitation in middle school uh, that the Lord eventually brought me to that church. Uh, That's where, of course, I met my wife, Kristen, and the Lord used that church to um, really uh, convict me to go into ministry and to go to Bible school and all those things. And so he would say things like, if it wasn't for that one invitation that you received in middle school, you never would have met your wife and you never would have, and this wouldn't have happened and that wouldn't have happened. All these dominoes that kind of fall uh, in a row, one after the other. Uh, Without that invitation that I received in seventh grade, I would have never met my wife. I would not have any of the kids that I have. I would not be your pastor, and I would probably be, I don't know, an engineer somewhere, just kind of at a desk minding my own business. Um, You could apply this kind of reasoning, this cause and effect reasoning, not only to your life personally, but you could apply it to life world events. What would happen if Adolf Hitler had never been born? What would the world be like today if, the, if America had lost the Revolutionary War? What if we lost World War II? What if Shakespeare had never been born? What if the Protestant Reformation never happened? What if the Wright brothers died before they could finish their invention? What if the South won? What if Christopher Columbus never sailed the ocean blue in 1492? What if these things didn't happen? And of course, you can apply this again back to onto your own life as well. Some of your major, major life decisions and events hinge on small, insignificant things. What if you hadn't received this particular invitation? Or what if you had happened to choose that university or or that career instead of this one? And as we think of these, what we might call watershed moments, moments in history that really point us in one direction or the other, we can... uh, we can give one watershed moment that kind of tops the list. One moment that is above the rest of those. One turning point of human history that stands out above everything else. It is, this one event is, so to speak, the flapping of the butterfly's wings that causes the hurricane on the other side of the world. This is, of course, none other than the resurrection Of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the reason we are here today. This is the reason that we are Christians. And this is the reason for the newness of life that we possess. It is all because of Christ and the resurrection. 
Like a lamp needs fuel, or a book needs words, or a song needs a tune, so Christianity needs the resurrection. And like a compass needs a needle, or a car needs an engine, or your lawnmower needs that teeny tiny little flywheel key, so Christianity needs the resurrection. And this is the topic, of course, to which we now turn. And I want to share with us today three fruits of the resurrection in the believer's life. Of course, we could give a lot more than this, but I simply want to focus and hone in on three fruits of the resurrection, of Christ's resurrection in the believer's life. And we're just going to state those here uh, right at the outset. The first one is this. Since Christ rose from the dead, we share in his life. The second resurrection fruit is since Christ rose from the dead, we share in his joy. And the third and final one that we'll see today is that since Christ rose from the dead, we share in his Holiness. And the direction that I like to go with this path or with this uh, theme today is to look at primarily Psalm 1610. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1610. And then we are going to look at two New Testament passages in the book of Acts that quotes this verse from Psalm 16. And so let's go ahead and read simply Psalm 1610. This was our call to worship today, it's our text for the message as well. We read simply, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Let's jump right into this. Number one is, since Christ rose from the dead, we share in his life. This is rather straightforward and can be extrapolated from a number of different passages in Scripture, one of which is Romans 6 and verse 8, where we read, if we have died with Christ, we believe we also will live with him. And you can see that this uh, pretty straightforwardly gives us our point. Since Christ rose from the dead, we share in his life. Since Christ died and we have died with him, we also will live with him. And this is something, of course, that applies to every single believer in Christ. All of those who are in Christ participate in his life. Those who are in Christ have new life. And when we talk about this shared life, we are talking, of course, of eternal life. We experience the joy and the satisfaction and the fulfillment of eternal life. Now, I want to explain how this happens, but I want to pause for a minute and do a little bit of homework here, okay? Because we haven't done our homework yet on Psalm 16 and verse 10 to see what this is talking about. Who is this talking about way back in the Old Testament before Christ was even born? So let's look back at our verse here. We read in Psalm 16 and verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now you all know that David is the one who wrote this. David is the one who wrote this psalm, and he uses the first person personal pronoun, me, I, my. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now, this should immediately cause us to pause for a minute, because David is writing this 
And he says, you will not allow my, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. What's the difficulty with this? David died. So how could, and his body decayed in a tomb. And so how could this possibly be something that David was writing about himself? It makes us question this verse and wonder exactly what it means. One might think perhaps maybe David put his hope in the wrong place. He thought he was going to be secure and he was writing this and saying, you're not going to let me see corruption. And then he was mistaken because he did see corruption. Some perhaps may think that that's what this was going on here. But of course, we know that we cannot make this conclusion because in the New Testament, we have some divine commentary. The best commentary that you can find on a bookshelf of the Old Testament is the New Testament. And it gives passage after passage after passage explaining what the Old Testament means. First, in Acts chapter 2, Peter gives his famous Pentecost sermon, and he quotes our passage. And after Peter quotes Psalm 1610, in this New Testament commentary, he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. What, what, what is Peter saying? He quotes Psalm 1610, and he says this in essence, guys, hello, w- wake up for a minute. Psalm 1610 cannot be referring to David because he's dead. I can point his tomb out to you. He's decaying. His body has decayed. And so equipped with this knowledge that this is not David, we have to do a little bit of detective work to figure out exactly what's going on in Psalm 16. David wrote Psalm 16. And Peter says that David wasn't talking about himself because David is dead, right? So we have to ask ourselves, as Sherlock Holmes once said, what do you make of this, Watson? What do we make of this? What, what, what can we possibly make of this particular thing going on here? Well, I can tell you what Peter made of this. And since this is part of God's inspired scripture, I can tell you more importantly what the Lord makes of this. What does the Lord make of the fact that David writes, you will not let my soul see corruption? And the answer, of course, is given to us in our Acts 2 passage, verses 30 through 32. Peter continues on and says about David, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about what? You see that there? He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he, that is Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his, that is Christ's flesh, see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And of course, Paul likewise quotes Psalm 16 And he comes to the exact same conclusion. If you fast forward in the book of Acts and go to Acts chapter 13, you'll read in verses 36 through 37, for David, 
after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David saw corruption, so it wasn't talking about himself. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And who was that? Jesus. All right, so here's what we're going to do here. It's time for us to stop beating around the bush and come straight to it. Psalm 1610 is an Old Testament prophecy about the resurrection of Christ. That's what it is. Acts 2 confirms it. Acts 13 confirms it. The New Testament teaches us that Psalm 1610 was not about David. It was about the promise of a coming Messiah. This verse is used, therefore, in both its original context in Psalm 16, as well as the New Testament quotations to bring about certain conclusions, certain implications, certain lessons, or certain results. Because Christ rose from the dead, as was predicted in the scriptures, therefore, dot, dot, dot. And these passages, these three passages that we're looking at today, give to us what these implications are. The therefore, because Christ was resurrected, therefore, dot, 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 dot. So let's get right to it. We've already said what our first one is that we share in his life. The indisputable biblical data on the subject is that Christians share the fate of their Lord. Romans 6 details this. And we've already looked at one verse in Romans 6. And the reality is that because of the doctrine of union with Christ, we share in his life, we share in his death, we share in his victory. We also see this in the context of our passage, Psalm 16. Let's jump ahead to the next verse and look at Psalm 16 and verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is, of course, talking about Christ's life. And this life is shared with all believers. The life that Christ has, you as a believer have. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. That word first fruits means that more is coming. More life, more new life to come. Christ was the first. And we see this also in Romans 8 and verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. If you are in Christ, you share in his life. Like the crew shares the fate of the captain, so too we share the fate of our king. If you're in the ship, then you have life. And whether you are on that ship, whether you are charged with raising the sails, or whether you are charged with swabbing the deck, all who are on the ship arrive safely to port. You may arrive to port with some battle scars. You might have a limp, or your hand might have been cut off somehow. But praise God, you're on the ship. And likewise, your life might be fraught with heartache, with trials, with discouragements, with persecution, with difficulties. But praise God, you're in Christ. You will arrive safely to port. 
you will arrive. Thomas Boston said that Christ's resurrection and the believer's resurrection stand and fall together. Thomas Manton says a shallow stream may easily drown a child. Christ passed through that sea of wrath, which would have drowned all the world, yea, came safely to shore. The, the wrath of God that would have drowned us like an ocean would drown a child, Christ passed through that successfully, safely, and with victory, and now he brings us safely to shore. This is the life that we share Because Christ has conquered death, then we therefore, by implication, have that same victory. That's the first uh, implication or fruit of the resurrection. The second fruit of the resurrection is, since Christ rose from the dead, we share in his joy. I want you to see Psalm 1611 again. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of what? Of joy. This verse teaches us that Christ has fullness of joy. His joy is full. And since our lives rise or fall with his life, therefore we too have fullness of joy. In other words... His joy is our joy. We see this in both passages in Acts. We see that Peter and Paul preach this passage from Psalm 16, and the result of the preaching of Psalm 16 is that joy falls on the believers there. Notice this in Acts 2, if we go a little bit further down, uh, during this same message where he preaches Acts or um, uh, Psalm 16, he says, beginning in verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with what? Glad and generous hearts. There was a working of gospel joy that was working its way through the hearts and the souls of the believers. That because Christ rose from the dead and because Christ redeemed them and because they share in Christ's life, there also was a practical effect. Something happened, something changed so that they had glad hearts, generous hearts. The same is also true in Acts 13 where Paul this time preaches from Psalm 16. And we read the result, the effect We read what happened was, and the disciples were filled with joy. There is a joy that comes from knowing Christ. It must be added to this, that this joy that is available to the Christian is available for immediate withdrawal. Christian joy is available now. In this moment, Christian joy is not available to you after you uh, prove your worth, so to speak. Christian joy is part of union with Christ and that Christ's benefits are applied to the believer the moment of salvation. 
Now, granted, we don't always access what we have. You might have millions of dollars in the bank, but what good is it if you never withdraw it? You have every reason to be joyful, but we are not always joyful, are we? Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in in one, one of my favorite Lewis quotes, says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. People say, oh, my desire, I just have too strong of a desire. This lust is too strong in me. I have too, too much desire for this thing. He says, that's not really the case. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Your, your child's playing in a mud pit, you know, two years old. We're going to go on a vacation to the beach. No, thanks. <laughs> All right. So, something's not clicking in your mind here, okay? Same thing. Look, look at the joys of what Christ has given to us. Oh, I, I'll fool around with this. Do you not, is something not connecting? So, the, the, the brain synapses, what's going on here? Are, do you not realize what's the joy available? How do you reason with the man who is on an all-expenses-paid vacation to the Florida Keys, and yet he mopes around in a sour mood. What do you do to fix that guy? What he needs to do is open his eyes and say, whoa, look what's around me. In the same way, how do you reason with a man who possesses eternal life and freedom from condemnation and forgiveness and pardon, and yet walks around with a bitter spirit? Open up your eyes. Stop hanging on to your sin and your bitterness and stop looking at this life through the lens of the temporary and look at it through the lens of the eternal. Do you not know what our inheritance is? Have you not been informed of this? Look at the joy that's available to us now in this very moment. Look at what inheritance is yours. You don't need to earn any of it. You just need to enjoy it. It's here. It's accessible. It's available in this very moment. It is all set out for you. The table's been arranged. The meal is set out. It's available. You can come and partake now. Infinite joy is available to us as believers. We have every reason in the world to be joyful. Not everybody does. Unbelievers do not have these reasons to be joyful. That's the second reason, or the second fruit, I should say, of the resurrection. You have the first fruit is that since Christ rose from the dead, therefore the consequence of this is that we share in his life. We have eternal life. The second fruit of the resurrection is that since Christ rose from uh, the dead, we share in his joy. And uh, the third one is, since Christ rose from the dead, we share in his holiness. Now, there are, uh, there, are, there are actually two things I could, two different things I could talk about um, in this one. 
I could talk about imputed holiness. That is, he has gifted us holiness, and we are perfectly considered to be righteous, even though we're not practically righteous. I'm not going to talk about that one now. What I'm meaning by this one is he causes us to become more holy, practically. This is what we call as Christians our sanctification, which is, which is a way of saying that as a Christian, you should look back at your life and see, I am more like Christ today than I was a year ago, and I'm more like Christ today than I was five years ago, and there is something, my actual actions and behavior and attitudes and dispositions and desires and delights and all of those things are actually changing for the better. I'm a nicer person than I was. I'm a more patient person than I was. I'm a more sacrificial person than I was. I'm less angry than I used to be. Uh, So on and so forth. If you are a Christian, Christ will grow you in your sanctification. And that's what I'm meaning by this one. Since Christ rose from the dead, we share in his holiness. On this point, Thomas Boston says, dead sinners are not fit members of a living head. That is to say, he imparts or gives us new life, of course, yes, but he also gives to us the ability now to fight the sin that resides in our hearts. Before you were converted, you had no ability to fight the sin in your heart. You were a slave to wherever it wanted to go. You... you, you, you know where Christ says that um, a, a tree bears fruit in accordance with its nature. This is what we're talking about here. Those who are by nature sinful people are going to bear sinful fruit. You can't bear good fruit. Apple trees, you cannot grow uh, cherries on apple trees. Okay, It's always going to bear fruit in accordance with its nature, with its genetic makeup. Okay, The same is true for us. Okay. Therefore, before you were a believer in Christ, you had the nature of a sinful person, and therefore you only produced sinful things. But now that you are in Christ, you have a new ability to fight the sin that resides in your heart that you did not have before. It's a new strength. And it's actually a new desire, too. I want to fight this now. Um, let me just encourage some people. I know as I, uh, am talking with, you know, people throughout the week and discipling and and counseling and all those kinds of things, I know that it can be sometimes discouraging to fall to the same sin again and again. And, And many of us have experienced, in fact, I think all of us have experienced that to some degree or another. And I just want to encourage you that one of the evidences of being in Christ is the desire to get back up and keep fighting that sin, okay? People who are not Christians don't want to get back up. They don't care to get back up, okay? Christians, you fell, okay? You get back up and you continue fighting that sin. You seek out accountability. You seek out help, all those kinds of things. That is a fruit of regeneration. God gives to us the ability to fight the sin that resides in our hearts, 
Now, I want to read to you, we're going to go to Paul's sermon this time, okay? Remember, we're looking at three passages, Psalm 16, the original text. We have New Testament commentary number one in Acts chapter two, Peter's sermon. And then we have New Testament commentary number two, which is uh, Paul's sermon in Acts 13, Okay, Acts 13, verses 38 through 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, this is resurrection fruit, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You've been freed from those shackles. The law is sufficient to convict us of sin. It is sufficient to reveal to us our sin. The law is not sufficient to help us conquer our sin. And this is what Christ did in the gospel. He did this through the resurrection. In other words, because of the resurrection, because of Psalm 1610, because Jesus did not see corruption, because God did not abandon his soul to Sheol, because of all of those things, we can have forgiveness and freedom, resurrection fruit. We have a new master now, and that comes with a new standard of living, and with that comes a new engine to power my obedience. You see, before Christ, you were a car with no engine sitting in your driveway. And as someone uh, I heard remark one time before, you can turn the key all you want, and you can shift through all the gears that you want, and you can make vroom, vroom noises in the car, but it's not going anywhere because it has no engine. After you were saved, you were given an engine. Now you can obey. Now you can follow and do what Christ has called us to do. Therefore, because of these things, we share in his holiness. We share in his life, we share in his joy, and we share in his holiness. We have the ability now with his power, not in our own strength, but through him to actually follow through and obey. These are three gifts or fruits of the resurrection of Christ. These are three of the things, of the many things that we are celebrating here today on Easter Sunday, and three of the things, of the many things, that we celebrate every single Sunday throughout the year. We are here because we believe that Christ has secured these benefits for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 17, we read this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Everything, every last thing in Christianity hinges on the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is the watershed moment of history. You can play all those games. If this didn't happen, what would happen here? If this didn't happen, if that, if this, if that, if I didn't meet this person, if I didn't go to this place at this time on this day, uh, if all of those things, 
Well, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If it were not for this one watershed moment, this hinge point in history, we would all be hopeless. And we would have every reason to despair. We would have every reason not to have joy because we would not share in the life of Christ. And we would not have holiness like a lamp needs fuel or a book needs words or a song needs a tune. So Christianity needs the resurrection. And therefore we also read in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, but in fact, but in fact, but in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. And because of this resurrection, because of the resurrection we celebrate today, there are numerous fruits in the believer's life that we can all enjoy. We've seen three of them today, and there are more. We would like to invite you to be a participant in these benefits. We would like to invite you to experience life, to experience full joy, and to experience Christ-like living. These three benefits are available to every human being at no cost. The call is straightforward. Repent and believe in the gospel. So I appeal to you, repent and believe in the gospel. Your life can go in one of two very different directions. Your own little watershed moment of sorts. You will either repent and believe in Christ, and that will point you in one direction. Or you can reject Christ, and that will point you in another direction. How do you share in Christ's life? Through trusting in Christ. How do you share in his joy so that you can live with full joy? It's through trusting in Christ. And how can you do good instead of evil? How can you share in his holiness? It is through trusting in Christ. And so we pray and ask that the Lord may continue to redeem souls here in our own community and across the world for our good and for his glory. And of course, all of this points us to one thing, and that is because of what Christ has done for us, we worship him. We put him on center stage. We exalt him and his name, and we glory in him above all else. He is worthy. Thank you, God, for your grace to us in the gospel. We thank you for these resurrection fruits that you have secured for us because of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. We pray that you might help if there be anyone here today who has not repented and believed in the gospel, that you would not permit them to leave this room until they have done so. We thank you that you are so kind to us and so patient that you have provided a way where we can have uh, a life that is full of joy, a life that is everlasting, 
that we can have forgiveness of sins and that the, the enmity that existed between you and us has been removed. We who, myself included, once shook our fists in your face and defied you to your very face, now worship you in great joy. We don't take credit for that. We know that you have done that. And so we worship you all the more for that. In Christ's name, amen.